0: Welcome to the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. I'm Kat Murthy, Cato's Senior Digital Outreach Manager, and you are at Cato Digital, a regular event series highlighting the intersection between tech, digital media, and the ideas of liberty. Today we'll be discussing Clink, an app-based alcohol delivery company that's bringing the connectivity of and user-friendliness of the sharing economy to one of the most, nation's most heavily regulated industries, alcohol. Even though officially prohibition did end in this country over 81 years ago, we are in many ways still suffering from the policy hangover, which has resulted in a very confusing patchwork of regulations at the federal, state, and local levels that can be a nightmare for entrepreneurs hoping to innovate within that space. At the same time, uh, businesses within the sharing economy are facing extreme pressure from the opposite direction as technophobic regulators who um, are not quite sure how to fit these businesses within the um, existing economic structures they're regulating, are attempting to use the strong arm of the law to control the ways in which that they can grow. Our panel today is featuring Clink's own CEO, Jeff Nadell, as well as two regulatory experts in the fields of alcohol and the sharing economy. We'll be discussing the role that Clink is playing within the sharing economy the tough regulatory landscape it must navigate and what this means for the future of alcohol delivery. The hashtag for this event series is as always Cato Digital. I encourage all of you to participate in the conversation online on Twitter and if you take any pictures to share them on Instagram. Um, for those of you in the live stream, we will be taking questions from Twitter. Uh, just tweet them in using Cato Digital, and I'll be sure to look for them and ask them towards the end of the panel. And with that, it's my pleasure to introduce David Osgo. David has been the Senior Vice President of the Distilled Spirits Council for the past 15 years, in which capacity he's largely focused on analyzing market trends, as well as the regulatory tax, economic, and social impacts of alcohol regulatory policy. You can find him on Twitter at, at DOzgo. David.
1: Thank you so much, Kat. Well, anytime a new market is developing, uh, as we're seeing right now in the market for home delivery of, of beverage alcohol, you really have to look at what, just what are the rules of the game that people have to play by, and those rules are what we call the alcohol regulations. Now, as Kat mentioned, the regulation of alcohol in this country really starts uh, with the 21st Amendment, the amendment that repealed prohibition. Now, for those of you who don't know, what the 21st Amendment really did is it didn't necessarily repeal prohibition, it just said, you know it states, uh, we used to have a national prohibition, now it's up to you. Thus, a lot of the regulation got put onto the states, or the responsibility for regulation got put onto the states. Now, uh, at the federal level, you do have some guiding principles, uh, namely those that have been laid out in the Federal Alcohol Administration Act. Uh, for the purposes of this uh, discussion of home delivery, one of the most important parts, statutes in that regulation or or in the FAA Act uh, has to do with the ban on tied houses or uh, ban on exclusive uh, outlet arrangements. What this means is that the... Supplier, the person making uh, the beer, the wine, the spirits, what have you, is not allowed to also be uh, the retailer. You can't join those two functions. Additionally, at the Supreme Court, there was a very, very important case uh, a few years ago called the 44 Liquor Mart case. Uh, What the court ruled is that yes states, while you guys can in fact regulate alcohol, those regulations have to have some sort of public policy purpose And more importantly, that purpose cannot be achieved by some other mean. And the court has a four-part test to to determine that. What this does is it really protects the industry to a certain extent from some silly laws, regulations. Now, additionally, there's something called the graham decision, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But So we throw all the responsibility for regulation onto the states. There are really two broad themes when you look at state regulation. Uh, The first of which is, are you going to allow private operators or not? Now, for the most part across the country, we do in fact, uh, when it comes to beer and wine, we allow private operators to be the wholesalers, the retailers. That's not the case for distilled spirits. There are still 17 states where the state, acts, uh, the state acts as either the wholesaler or the retailer, it essentially grants itself a, a monopoly. Obviously, when it comes to home delivery, those states, the, the laws tend to be much, much more difficult. Now, the second broad sort of brush uh, with regard to alcohol regulation is something that's called the three-tier system. Don't forget, at the, the Federal Al- Alcohol Administration Act, has that tied house provision that essentially bans uh, the supplier from also being the retailer? Well, in most instances, the states took that another step and they decided, well, okay, uh, you have suppliers who could be national. obviously the retailer is going to be local, but we want even more control over alcohol. So they felt that if you required a state wholesaler uh, to a state licensed wholesaler to wholesale the alcohol, Uh, that would give them even more control. So that gave birth to what we call the three-tier system, where you have a separate supplier manufacturing the product, a separate wholesaler, and then finally a retailer. So at the state level then, in order to sell uh, beverage alcohol, you're going to have to have some sort of license. Uh, You're gonna have to get a, and in some instances, it's not just a state license that you have to get, it's a retail license as well. Uh, So ultimately, anyone that wishes to deliver uh, beverage alcohol, spirits, beer, or wine uh, to someone's home is going to have to work through one of these locally or state licensed retailers. Now, as you might expect, the laws are very, very complex with regard to whether or not uh, home delivery is even allowed uh, within each state. And when we've looked at the laws, As you might expect, they're very murky, but between 28 and 34 states allow home delivery. Uh, Now the difference comes in that there are only 28 states that allow uh, home delivery of distilled spirits, whereas there are 34 that will allow delivery of beer and wine. Uh, It tends to be the state monopolies that don't allow delivery of spirits. There are 10 to 13 states uh, that just don't allow uh, home delivery at all. Uh, And then there are seven to to 10 where to be honest with you, we've had our attorneys looking at it and they say, it's really unclear. And now I think Jeff is going to talk about just how he has built a business very admirable uh, in this very, very difficult regulatory environment.
0: Thank you. And um, with that, I'd like to introduce Jeff Nadal. Jeff is the founder and CEO of Clink. He was born in South Florida where he first developed his entrepreneurial spirit while working with uh, lemonade stands. And that skill, I'm sure, has come in great handy while you're working out on how to uh, navigate this regulatory landscape. Jeff?
2: Thanks so much, Kat. And I just want to thank Cato um, for the awesome event. So starting out, um, you, you all have a a decent sense of what Clink is, but I wanna expound on it a little more. First of all, most importantly, Clink is a great, great excuse for Cato to have an event with the word alcohol in it and get a bunch of people to show up. (laughs) So that's a good start. Um, But more seriously, Clink is an app and website that let customers order beer, wine, and spirits for delivery on demand in under an hour. And I'd humbly suggest the best way to buy beer, wine, and spirits. Um, So what we do and the way that works is we actually go out and we do all the legwork and research to identify the best possible retail partners, the best liquor stores we can work with. We get them um, as part of our network and then when you as a customer go and place an order through our app or website, your order is gonna be intelligently routed to the retailer that can best fulfill that order um, and ultimately provide the best experience for you. why why are we doing this, right? So um, Craig, my co-founder, Craig, my partner sitting in the front row, um, he and I both went to college in different places. We went to preschool together, actually, and then we were friends in high school. We went to college in different places. I was at UPenn in Philly, and Craig was at UCF in Orlando. We had these parallel experiences at the exact same time in different places we would realize whether we were at a party or we had friends over or we were entertaining, whatever it was, inevitably, every once in a while, we would run out of alcohol. And it was like the worst experience, and we both had it multiple times. And we said, you know, th- there's got to be a way to, uh, to, to do something about this and not have someone drawing a short straw, having to go get more, and potentially at many times that being dangerous when people have been drinking. Um, so how do, we, how do we solve that problem? And so we, we really started looking into it. And what we realized is that beer, wine, and spirits aren't just like any other commodity, right? It's, it's not just like groceries or, or getting pizza delivered or something like that. There's something unique and very special about about beer, wine, and spirits, which is when people are drinking, they're celebrating, they're together, they're enjoying people's company, they're, they're taking a break, they're slowing down. And all of these things were, were so exciting to us. And we realized that all of those things made it even more important that we leverage technology to provide a way so people don't have to leave the company of their friends, and they can entertain without that worry. So what Clink is about, at a higher, in a higher sense in many respects, is about empowering hosts to entertain without worrying about that. Whether you're having a dinner for two or you're having a party for 100, giving hosts the tools both in terms of the alcohol, the beverages, and in terms of cocktail recipes and food pairings and liquor-infused cupcakes like we did on Valentine's Day and mixologists straight to your house. All the things that empower you to really be a great, great host. So. What, what's this journey been like, right? Well, Kat alluded to uh, my, my lemonade stand days when I was like seven, and I got shut down by the police multiple times because I didn't have permits. Um, so I was, I was prepped for a heavily regulated space. Um, But we, before we ever launched, we spent almost 10 months doing nothing but figuring out how do we structure this business legally. At the time there was no one doing what we were doing and like David explained, it's an incredibly heavily regulated space. So how do we do this legally? Worked with the best lawyers we could find. We struggled and struggled, figured out how do we structure these relationships with retailers so that we don't run afoul of the laws and regulations. And eventually we got to a point where we had a structure that would would work not only in our first market, which was Florida, but in fact, um, like David said, in, in most of the states where, where we're legal, legally allowed um, to conduct business. So. Let's look at the, the regulatory landscape a little bit and how it's affected us. Um, the, the comparison you know, in this event and, and on all over the place is that we're similar to Uber, we're similar to Airbnb, kind of part of the on-demand economy and the sharing economy. And in many respects, that's true. We're, we're sort of driving towards the same agenda and we're, we're playing the same ball game, um, and there are, there are a lot of similarities. But we're talking alcohol, we're not talking transportation, and there are a lot of differences and a lot that makes this regulatory apparatus um, unique. Here's, here's the way it works. Like David said, every state has their own alcohol regulatory agency, and these agencies have immense power, inordinate amounts of power, not only from kind of a textbook regulatory level, but from a really day-to-day operational level of these retailers. They can inspect their books. They can investigate them. They can go in and ask questions whenever they want. They can do undercover stings. There's a whole lot of things that they do. The result, When you pair that with the fact that the vast, vast majority of retailers are mom and pop shops, they're single location, one or two locations. There's there's almost no major players, percentage-wise, in the retail space. The result is a huge imbalance of power. You have these huge, powerful regulatory agencies pitted up in many respects against these mom and pop shops. And when you come to these retailers with an innovative opportunity, let's increase your sales, get you new customers, leverage technology, all this exciting stuff. The finger is kind of pressed on the scale in the favor of not innovating because the risk is heightened to innovate. Am I gonna end up on the wrong side of regulators? That's what retailers ask themselves. Not only am I gonna end up on the wrong side of regulations and the laws, but am I gonna end up on the wrong side of regulators, the people, if they, if I'm on the wrong side of them, even if I'm not running afoul of a particular law, my life could be made very difficult, I could lose my license, which is my livelihood. So because these agencies have the power in in many cases to summarily issue citations and suspend licenses, the risk to innovation for these retailers is very, very heightened. And that's really the core challenge that we deal with in, in doing deals with our retailers since we rely so heavily on them. How is this manifest? This manifests in a lot of ways. Restrictions on operating hours. Even though people aren't driving to stores, you know, we can't operate after the prescribed hours that retailers have to close. Um, because of the state by state regulations, uh, alcohol beverage products can't be sold across state lines. So if, even if we could get you cheaper product from Virginia, we can't bring it to you in DC. It's a big, um, that's a big component too. And, craft distilleries, microbreweries, any entrepreneurs and small businesses who actually wanna enter the space and start producing and create something of their own, it's very difficult for them. They spend so much time dealing with the regulations, trying to get into distribution. It's a very, very serious challenge there. Um, We've had different experiences, state to state. In Florida, we had an experience when we launched. We took bets on how long it was going to take for regulators to come knocking. It was 17 days, by the way. And they, um, they, they had never seen anything like what we were doing. So it was very inquisitive. Let's investigate thoroughly. Let's do undercover sting operations, which happened. Let's look at the retailer agreements. And that was a very thorough investigation, and it ended, and, and we were fine. D.C. is actually incredibly hospitable. We had some open conversations with regulators, and they were, incredibly, they were great to work with. Take a state like Michigan where you actually have regulators who are taking the side of entrenched and established interests and defending retailers who can't compete with the retailers we were working with on price. Um, And we start entering an incredibly hostile regulatory environment just because some regulators have decided to protect those entrenched interests. So there's a a spectrum of experiences that we've had um, that, that vary a lot. But the core of it is this. What we're trying to do is leverage technology, leverage new technology, listen to consumers, provide consumers what they want in order to operate outside of the 3 tier distribution system. So in many ways, what we're doing is we're trying to make a system more customer friendly, uh, more user friendly by operating outside of it. And once we're able to structure our business in a way that actually isn't technically part of the three tier distribution system, we're able to do some incredible things, connecting customers to the best retailers, connecting, in fact, the three tiers of the system, connecting brands directly to customers and vice versa. And there's a lot of lot of uh, exciting, powerful stuff there. So that's kind of our journey so far. I also do want to mention, big uh, call out here, that you all have cards with promo codes on them that are gonna get you two free deliveries through Clink. So your delivery fee will be waived twice, and we're gonna be doing a drawing. So anyone who uses that promo code in the next two weeks, two weeks from now we're gonna be doing a drawing and we're gonna be doing um, two $50 gift gift certificates for Clink going forward. So definitely get your order in the next two weeks and we'll get you gift certificates.
0: Thank you, Jeff. Uh, Up next, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Matthew Feeney. Uh, Matthew is Cato's leading expert on the sharing economy and he's gonna be putting Klink's work a little bit more into context of uh, the ways that it's similar with other sharing economy businesses you may have heard of and the ways in which it differs.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Kat, and thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm really thrilled to be able to talk about some of my favorite things, namely uh, alcohol and ways to get it (laughs) and technology. Uh, And I'm I'm really (laughs) thankful that Jeff is here and uh, as well as David. Um, anyone who believes that Jeff was telling the truth when he said that um, alcohol brings people together for celebration uh, should witness uh, any English pub when the English soccer team is playing uh, as a <laughs> counterexample <laughs> to that. Uh, but, I, um, but I also, more to the point, uh, living, living here, I think it's a great app because uh, anyone who shows up to my house without booze for parties no longer has an excuse for not being able to provide any. Uh, now, <laughs> Uh, this is this is a really great uh, great innovation, and I don't know if any of you have downloaded the app, but it's very interesting, and it's commonly referred to uh, as the Uber for alcohol. And there are certain similarities, but what I want to do is talk about how it's actually a little different, and how the sharing economy is a bit more broad. Of course, the the term sharing economy is a bit of a misnomer; no one is sharing anything. I don't think you're giving out booze for free. Uh, and, you know, right. and and in Uber, the only thing being shared is oftentimes the mints uh, or the bottles of water. Uh, this is a classic uh, economic transaction. There's a provider and there's a customer. Uh, so you have companies like Uber and Lyft and Sidecar, which are competing with the taxi industry. You have Airbnb, which is competing with uh, B&Bs and hotels. But what's, what's interesting is that while uh, Clink is similar in that it's app-based uh, and similar to Uber in that way. Uh, it's different because it's providing a different sort of competition. Um, I hope Jeff will get into this a bit more in the Q and A. But uh, as I understand it, the company uh, is is working through retailers. You're not providing an actual direct competition uh, to re- so that that's that's very interesting. Um, So in that way, Clink is more like uh, companies you might have heard of called uh, Halo or MyTaxi, which are apps that allow you to hail licensed uh, and uh, vetted taxis rather than Uber, Lyft or uh, Sidecar where you're uh, requesting someone driving their own car providing competition to a taxi. But David's uh, comments uh, reminded me that uh, a really important similarity is the regulatory barriers that these innovative companies are facing. And what, what I think is important uh, for anyone interested in this going forward is to make sure that policymakers are interested in a regime of repealing existing regulations rather than trying to carve out a new regulatory uh, structures for this new thing. It's interesting when we talk about the sharing economy that we talk about it, how it's um, new. But Airbnb is only making a very familiar thing uh, easier people have been crashing on people 's couches for as long as the, long as there have been accommodations uh, since there have been automobiles people have been giving people rides and people have been drinking booze for a long long time and they've been uh, sharing it for a long long time as well as purchasing it and uh, one of the reasons when I started here at Cato that I was really excited to work in this industri- uh, work on uh, examining this industry is that uh, it's it's a really good way to highlight how Uh, government and states can make uh, what should be ordinary things very, very difficult. It should be relatively easy, given the internet age, for you to order beers on your phone. It's insane to me that that is difficult. (laughs) It seems very strange. Um, Likewise, if you want to give someone a ride in your car, in some uh, jurisdictions, that can get you in a lot of trouble. And I think that is uh, you know, unfortunate, and I hope that you know, as Jeff expands the business, that uh, more and more lawmakers come around to my point of view. Um, not getting my hopes up too much, but I, I do hope that, uh, that that will be considered. Um, I also want to talk about the future a little bit, because it's, it's not just uh, the, we have to keep in mind that while these companies expand and grow, that uh, the people that are currently working in these regulatory bodies will eventually be people that grew up with these technologies, and they're not going to be uh, sympathetic to the sort of regulations that are on the books at the moment. But we have to uh, think about things in the future. So what about, I, I know I've seen uh, Amazon drone deliveries, there was something at Michigan drone delivery of beer on um, ice fishing. I think that was a promo. I don't think that's actually going on, but it's not inconceivable that uh, one day this could be possible. Uh, and th- there are other goods and services that we should consider. So uh, I you know it, it's, it's great working at the Cato Institute because we work on a whole range of policies, and some of the policies... Uh, from a libertarian perspective that I'm very optimistic about uh, at the moment is marijuana legalization. I I think that in the future, more and more jurisdictions are going to legalize the use of recreational marijuana. And I think once that is uh, legal, more and more people are going to want it delivered to their house. Uh, And I think uh, that there are going to be companies that are going to be interested in this. Uh, There are already companies called... Ease and Meadow, which are engaged in this uh, in, in some jurisdictions. But lawmakers need to be forward looking and think about uh, what are the industries that are going to be changed by this technology, what are the changing opinions of our populace, and what regulatory frameworks uh, can we establish that will make it easier for innovators. Um, I, I really look forward to seeing not only uh, how Clink does, but also how your competitors do. Uh, What's happened in D.C. is really interesting, because uh, there was, I believe, the the company is called Ultra? Is that? Yeah. Um, Ultra got in a lot of trouble um, for doing something that I don't think should be illegal, but uh, is, which is uh, they were in violation of some of the licensing laws, um, and the licensing laws of alcohol are um, getting a little ridiculous uh, and and need to be reformed, uh, but, you know, the Watch this space uh, is what I'll finish, on, uh, finish my comments on. And uh, thanks again to David and Jeff for coming, and I look forward to taking your questions.
0: Thank you. Um, and with that, I'm gonna go ahead and take the moderator's prerogative and ask a few questions for our panelists here today. For those of you watching from home or work anywhere on the live stream, go ahead and tweet in any questions you may have with Cato Digital, and um, I'll also get to questions from the audience. Um, My first question I think is largely tailored at you Jeff, but I'd I'd like uh, Matthew and David to um, weigh in a little bit. Clink is interesting in that it's um, facing regulatory pressure both from the alcohol industry, but also from uh, those working within the sharing economy, um, regulating the sharing economy. Do you, from which side have you faced more regulatory pressure at this point? And how do you think that that's going to change if it is in the future?
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, the the interesting thing is that, um, like Matt said, they're they're there aren 't many written regulations for what we 're doing yet now there are some jurisdictions that that have promulgated regulations like that. but um, an interesting thing is when we launched in d c like I said, the regulators were very kind of open with us and handled it very well and a few weeks later, they promulgated official guidelines based on how we have our business structured and so seeing jurisdictions that are accommodating in that respect is is really encouraging um, in in a regulatory space that maybe otherwise uh, lacks encouragement at sometimes but so I mean in terms of what we 're Subject to is is largely the the alcohol related um, regulations, and then in cases where those regulatory agencies go a little further and drill down specifically to businesses like ours, then those would you know take over.
0: Did you either of you have anything you wanted to add?
1: Uh, no, I think he hit the nail on the head in the fact that you know this is a new business and something regulators have never seen before. Regulators really like case precedent; they really like to do what they've done before. Well, when you come up with a new business model, uh, sometimes they might not necessarily be hostile to it, Uh, it's just the fact that they have absolutely no idea how to deal with it.
0: So one of the questions um, that I had come up a few times when I was discussing with people, um, this panel and Clink and everything like that was, isn't there a concern, especially from regulators but also from the general public that Alcohol delivery apps like Clink uh, would make it much easier for uh, underage drinkers to buy alcohol um, not only because you know they can buy it on the app, but then let's say that once people the delivery companies come out to give them the alcohol, they're incentivized not to turn around and go back to the store right sure uh,
2: yeah. so. That's that's a great question, and and from when we started day one, it was of of, of paramount importance to us to make sure that Clink was never used for for that purpose for for underage people um, buying alcohol. And so, our age verification methods are actually far more stringent than the methods employed in a store or a bar or or a club or a restaurant or anything like that. Um, we first of all, when you place an order, you have to enter your driver's license information, um, which itself. Deters people um, if they're if they're not of age as it should. Um, And then upon every delivery, the driver's licenses or IDs are checked and inspected. Um, Deliveries are only made to the person who actually placed the order. So you know I can't use a fake name and then order. Um, And then on top of that, we have actually developed in-house proprietary ID verification technology. So even if you have a really good fake ID, um, it's not going to cut it (laughs) with us. So an ID that you know might be really good, um, a fake ID that might be really good, which might work um, in some, some liquor stores isn't gonna work with us. And so um, you know, we, we pride ourselves on actually being more thorough and more stringent than, than the retailers or restaurants or bars.
0: As a little follow-up to that, would there then be some sort of blacklist for people who've attempted to use fake IDs, that kind of thing? Or Yeah, you know, definitely. I, I should
2: also add for, for another part of your question, we have um, sort of systems in place so that the drivers and the retailers are never incentivized to give um, to someone underage. So we have a lot, of, a lot of things in place so they don't lose out on their tip and, and things like that. But um, yeah, if, if anyone tries to order through us and, and their ID is fake or they refuse to show ID, um, my recommendation is don't try to do it again because, they're, yeah, they're blacklisted.
3: So uh, a quick follow-up on that. I think what Jeff said is a great example of how private actors can ensure uh, safety. It seems to me that we don't need a uh, new set of regulations or laws to suit this out. I mean, Jeff uh, probably wants to stay in business, um, and he probably <laughs> wants to make sure that yeah. people don't um, break the law when using your technology. Uh, I, I think the, the, that you know, the, the, the incentive on providers of the technology um, speaks for itself when it comes to ensuring uh, safety, uh, you know, I, I think any uh, sensible company who's engaged in this would probably do the same thing. Uh, so that's just a roundabout way of me saying uh, these things are new, but it doesn't mean they have to be accompanied necessarily by new regulations.
1: Yeah, and I might add that you know almost any retailer he has a license, and he that license is his livelihood. He's going to protect that. When we do surveys on underage drinking and as to where the alcohol is actually coming from, more often than not, it's coming from someone who has purchased it legally, uh, It's someone who is uh, of age and has purchased it legally and given it to them. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's not surprising to me that uh, Jeff has gone through great, a great extent to make sure they don't give, uh, give alcohol to underage persons. After all, it's his livelihood. You know, he, he doesn't want to become a criminal. Uh, that's, that's more than enough incentive for any entrepreneur. So
0: Clink is interesting in that it's sort of in the startup space, but at the same time you've been partnering with uh, large established companies like, for instance, InBev um, with, your, with the spin-off spinoff uh, Bud Light button app. Uh, what kind of pressures is that creating? Does it make it easier for your business to pass through these regulatory um, boundaries, or is it something that's... Bringing in more of those kinds of hurdles, like yeah. how how are you navigating that?
2: It's it's a good question. So it's it's really exciting for us um, opportunities like that. And you know, there's there's millions and millions of startups out there, but to get the opportunity to work with some of the biggest players in an industry is always very exciting. And we're uniquely positioned to do that because everyone's subject to this three tier distribution system. Um, and the result of it is that the one of the results is that the manufacturers, the brands who are actually making the product, are completely disconnected from the consumers at the point of purchase, because they can't sell direct to consumers. They sell to a distributor, distributor sells to a retailer, retailer sells to consumer. So what we're able to do, because we're outside of the three-tier distribution system, and because we're leveraging technology, is we're able to actually provide a means by which brands can interact directly with their customers at the point of purchase and create a branded experience. So it's very exciting for us. Um, from the To answer the, the regulatory question, um it doesn't have much much impact there if anything it uh you know it gets a lot of a lot of press coverage and and maybe additional scrutiny, but it doesn't change the way we do business and you know everything's structured from the ground up to be compliant
0: Wonderful um and then I just have one other question uh for you, and then we'll jump into the audience here. There's several different alcohol delivery apps in this space um what is setting you aside uh, apart from something like drizzly or elixir or um, saucy or those kinds of apps?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. It is, uh, it is a hot space, but we're, we're happy to be in it. So um, one of the obviously big things that, that Matt alluded to is we're doing it legally, which is great. Uh, some of our competitors have been shut down. So if you use us, we're not gonna get shut down. We've proven that quite a few times. Um, but what, But really, like I talked about, what we're about is empowering the hosts and delivering incredible experiences to people. So. A lot of people in the space, a lot of companies in the space talk about bringing the liquor store to your door, right? That's the big thing. We want to bring the liquor store to your door. We're of the mind that uh, in many respects, the liquor store experience is a little bit broken and uh, is not the best experience. There are some great ones, but there's a lot of not so great ones. And um, a lot of the people I know and the people we talk to you know, when we launched the company weren't really super excited when they had to go to the liquor store. And so what we're doing is we're bringing a completely different and elevated experience to customers that you can't get um, from a liquor store. So it's not just delivering products from point a to point b it's connecting people with cocktail recipes with food pairings Um, in our new platform it'll be helping people discover the best products sending mixologists out to people's houses sending um, we've done liquor infused cupcakes and barbecue sandwiches and we've done all these all these things my favorite thing um, as a founder is when i get a call which this happens thankfully quite frequently i get a call or an email or a text message or something from a customer who says I uh, had this event last night. I had people over. I could never go back to doing it how I used to do it. Um, and so what we do is our jo- we don't think that our job stops when the product is delivered for us that's kind of just the beginning. We take total ownership over the end to end experience that our customers have, and we want that to be an excellent experience and so that's that's really what Clink is about
3: um, quick comment uh, i you know preparing for this event, reading a bit about clink's uh, experience and and while Jeff does highlight the fact that he spent time making sure that the company was compliant, I think I'm correct in saying you, you said that took a year. Yeah, right? so Which, okay, um, I just, that's absurd. Like, I, just, I, I mean, think about um, what Clink is fundamentally doing and consider whether it's fair that that should take someone a year. Um, this is, I, you know, I, I think it's good that, you know, that there, there's an attitude towards compliance here, but uh, anyone who's involved in alcohol regulation who hears that should um, consider that very, very carefully.
0: Um, thank you. And I have a question here from Twitter at Tim Two Brown asks, "What kind of impact has Clink had on their partner liquor stores?"
2: Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, that's one of the exciting parts about um, you know Matt. You talked about we're not like Uber's competing with taxis, we're not competing with retailers. Um, the, the ones, we, we go out and we do a lot of legwork. We're very, very rigorous in our screening process for the retailers we work with. So everything we do, especially in that regard, is totally customer centric. So we make sure that they have the best prices, the best service, the best selection. And when we find those retailers who will actually be the best for customers, very excited and we add them to our network and we end up driving a ton of business to these, these retailers um, in, in many respects you know leading to really really substantial growth um, in their delivery businesses if they already have a delivery business or in their overall business Um, when retailers start working with us several months in clink orders usually make up a a relatively substantial part of their overall business and that's real exciting for us because it is you know it's mom and pop shops it's single location and when we're able to work with a retailer in you know Columbia Heights for example and drive business to them from Georgetown that they would never get otherwise um, that's awesome And, and they're excited about it too
0: great thank you uh, does anyone in the audience have a question? I do ask that you please keep it to a question, and I will repeat it then back into the mics for the folks watching at home. Okay. I have a couple
1: question. First of all, I'd like to thank Mr. Oswald for the you know, Christmas party last season. <laughs> I can assure you we did not run out of liquor that and we ran out of time. was <laughs> <laughs> a great excuse. So, so
2: Happy to have you. Now I know what discuss really means. Uh, but I would like to ask you, what do you think the overall projections
1: are for liquor sales as a result of your app? Uh, will that have any impact on the overall industry?
0: So the question from uh, Todd Wiggins here in the audience was whether Clink um, as an app would have any impact on the alcohol industry itself in terms of overall sales.
2: So, the alcohol for home consumption market's a huge market it 's a ninety billion dollar a year market and I think what um, what we 're seeing already and what we 'll continue to see with with our impact is um, you know driving people to definitely lean more towards delivery um, is obviously one huge aspect. We see people all the time who order from us who are who live one block away from a liquor store, <laughs> but they're still ordering from us because of the value that we add. So I think that's gonna be a big trend that you see, and I think that that will have impacts on the retail tier of the business too, because I think the way that that business is conducted is gonna change a bit as, um, as the business shifts more to delivery and less to hoping foot traffic comes into the store. I don't think that you know, we're gonna necessarily increase overall consumption, but I think we're gonna change the way um, that purchases are made and that, that consumption is, is done.
1: Yeah, I might add that from our perspective, right now in the typical state, there are usually three to four beer licenses for every single spirits license. So a big problem we face, and a lot of this has to do with the, the regulations regarding spirits, so the big problem we face is simple lack of availability. We're quite happy that there are now people who are safely providing home delivery services because it actually gives access to our products that we otherwise would not have.
0: Uh, I see a hand right back there.
1: Yes. Uh, You mentioned you had a very favorable regulatory experience with DC. That's due to your working directly with the liquor store as opposed to working with the distributor and acting as a
2: liquor store yourself. That's something else. Um, So we. Sorry, let me just repeat the question for the folks. Um,
0: So the question was um, whether. So Clink has had a relatively favorable relationship with the liquor stores they've partnered with and the question was whether it was their particular brand of service that was as a delivery app that was creating that or something else
2: was it was a question about the regulatory response in dc oh i'm sorry yeah. so whether the was-
0: regulatory response was right so
2: yeah that. so we just to clarify so we work with retailers in all the markets we're in um, not just in dc because we legally can't work with distributors in, in the vast majority of markets um, and so i think you know, what we've seen from the different markets we've operated in is there's, there is this broad spectrum of reactions to what we're doing. Everything ranging from the, what is this we need to investigate kind of reflex to the very hostile. And DC, um, I think it's, it's not a total coincidence. You know, DC is also one of the most hospitable environments for ride sharing regulation too um, recently. So that's, you know, I think there's a trend there. Um, but in terms of you know, why they're hospitable, we've done the legwork to make sure our business is structured correctly. And so we had a very open conversation with um, DC regulators. And it was interesting because as Matt mentioned, we had a competitor that was shut down in DC days before. And um, that left a bad taste in their mouth, because you know the natural assumption fairly is that we were doing the same thing that that company was, and that was not legal so you know we got we got called and, and that was the assumption, but very quickly we're, we were able to explain you know how we do business and, and they understood that it was legal and, and we 've proceeded in, in an incredibly um, amicable way from there so I, I really think a lot of it is the the, the commitment of, of the regulators to recognize innovation and kind of embrace the technology, which they did by promulgating their guidelines a few weeks after we launched, um, versus personalities at play that, that are very hostile to it. So I, I commend Abra um, for that.
0: I actually have a bit of a follow-up to that for you. Um, as you so Clink is partnering with various different local liquor businesses um, in the markets in which you're operating in order to do your sales and delivery. Um, how are you doing that? Uh, how are you selecting which ones to work with and which ones aren't? And is that affecting um, the regulatory climate at all?
2: Sure, No, that's a really good question. So our selection criteria for retailers, like I mentioned, very rigorous and totally customer-driven. So um, we, only, we look at criteria that will determine if the store will best serve customers. Um, one of the big ones is It's basically price, service, selection, and location, and then a lot of subcategories in there. So we wanna find retailers that are very competitive on the value they're providing. So if you're in Georgetown um, and you go to a nearby liquor store and get Smirnoff for $30, but you can order it through us from 20, um, that's a good value proposition. And so that's one aspect. Service, we wanna make sure that you have a great experience every time, um, and that's important. And selection, we wanna make sure that you can get a lot of stuff that you want and that the stores aren't gonna run out of it. and there's obviously a lot of lot of you know subcategories there, but yes, there there, there are regulatory implications of our retailer selection process. An example um, is in Michigan, where we purposely selected retailers that had very competitive prices. Um, in, in Michigan, in fact, as, as David and I were talking about earlier, there are state minimum prices on distilled spirits uh, below which you cannot legally charge. And so the retailer we were working with had state minimum pricing, whereas a retailer that was closer to the University of Michigan um, had... 30 to 40 percent overstate pricing. Suffice it to say that when everyone around the University of Michigan started ordering through our service and driving business to the cheaper store, um, the stores that had higher prices were not so happy. They no longer had a captive, captive audience. And that comes into play because those stores can often leverage regulatory power to protect their interests, and things get a little complicated. Oh, I see a
0: question back there. I have a question about analytics. Because if I were to mention- Yeah. yeah. So the question was um, whether Clink had noticed any sort of patterns of demographic trends in terms of when people were buying alcohol. The, um, the person who asked the question uh, surmised that it was likely that younger folks were buying alcohol more likely um, on weekend nights. Uh, but was there any sort of a discrepancy in that pattern from other demographic
2: groups? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's a great question, and it's something that, that I love to answer because when we we have been surprised by certain things. So when we first started, um, when we first started the business, we thought, it, it, we were thinking about the use case that I described. You're at a party, you run out of alcohol, and then you use us to get more. And that was the use case that was in mind because it's something that we had experienced. Um, and, that still happens, but in many respects, and this is a good thing for us, that's not the primary use case. The primary use case is people buy all their alcohol through us. So they don't just buy from somewhere else and then run out and then, then restock with us. But when they know they're having a party tonight, they'll order you know, an hour or two before, or, or, or even earlier in the day or the day before, they'll order through us. And that was a huge realization for us that people would actually um, you know, make us their primary method of, of purchasing. Um, and that's really exciting. Another one, which is kind of a little bit funny, but um, when we were first launching one of the first liquor stores that we talked to, was super excited about um, working with us, and we got into all these conversations, and towards the end, he said, oh, but you know people are only going to order kegs for delivery, right? (laughs) And they thought that's the only business we would do, and obviously our business is much broader than that. Um, In D.C., wine is the biggest category, for example. Um, So, you know, there's been interesting realizations, but your two assumptions are right, um, that most of the customers are between 21 and 35, and that the highest volume times are on the weekends. But You'd also be surprised because we have um, a lot of office orders. Um, you know, big offices ordering every week on Tuesdays or Wednesdays. So there's a lot of a lot of variation too.
0: So the question was in relation to funding especially in um innovative new spheres like um di- digitally based companies like Clink um where is that funding coming from is it largely venture capital is it private funding is there something
2: else It's a good question and I think one of the one of the points that this hits on is um the fact that you know not even talking about us for a second, but the retailers, they don't, because the market is so fragmented at the retail level, because there aren't these huge companies, the biggest player in the retail space only controls like 3% of the market. And so the result is that these retailers, the mom and pop shops, don't have teams of lawyers and lobbyists. And that's what causes them to err on the side of not innovating uh, many times. Thankfully, we find ones that are willing to innovate. Um, To answer the question, I think we're fueled uh, mostly by... uh, just our motivation to make it work more than anything else. Um, we, we don't have crazy deep pockets. We've raised some uh, money from a venture capital firm but more than anything, we are committed to the idea that customers want this service that's been validated and we, we were committed to that idea from the beginning. We thought that if we just put something out there that the response would be there from customers. And so we literally sat down, like I mentioned, it was a many, many months long process figuring out how to structure it. But there were many times in that process where we sat down uh, you know, with our attorneys and just said, look, we're launching this, uh, how are we gonna make it work? Um, and and it, it, we're, we're just determined to, to do that. So though we have everything structured um, very carefully and we're very uh, concerned about being compliant and having open conversations with regulators, we don't really ask for permission. Um, that would be costly because then that you're talking about you know, six months of, of dealing with a lot of paperwork and a lot of opinions and, and, and a lot of different stuff. Um, we don't really do that. We, When we go into a market, we're confident that we're following the law and then we do it and customers speak uh, volumes at that point. So that's our strategy.
0: I have another question from Twitter here from at BlairBN. Her question is, um, or his question possibly, uh, do you feel that apps like this have brought improved safety to consumers uh, by keeping consumers off the road um, to restructuring during parties and off the road during bad weather? Um, and if so, how?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think I think that definitely has happened. So you know, like I said, it we're making delivery convenient and easy and and, and frictionless, and so we're definitely driving more towards that and like I mentioned, our use case um, that we had in mind when we started the company was people running out of alcohol at an event and how do they get more? Um, And that's a real problem too from a safety perspective because everyone's been drinking and everyone wants more alcohol and who's gonna go and get it and that's a serious safety concern. And so um, it's it's great that we're able to provide a way you know a means by which people can just order and have it brought straight to them instead of having to go out and and you know potentially risk their safety and I mean that is something that that we've heard from quite a few people now we've heard use cases as 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 diverse as you know my kids fell asleep and I want beer to you know safety related ones and so that's definitely something that um, makes us happy quite frankly, when people tell us that we're we're improving safety
0: David, do you have anything to add on that point
1: no obviously. Uh, as to whether or not you're delivering a product safely is uh, going to be extraordinarily important. Uh, Everybody across the industry uh, works on safety. Uh, Everybody's constantly concerned about underage drinking and drunk driving. And to the extent that there are businesses out there now that are reducing uh, the likelihood that somebody would uh, drink and drive, I mean, that's just a wonderful thing.
3: Yeah, uh, so I I would just add it's not... um just clink i I think you know ride sharing has had um a, a, an effect on this uh, people using Uber or lyft uh to to get home from uh bars instead of um you know trying to drive home dangerously uh, i mean the the clink thing is very interesting I think you know a lot of people in the audience or are watching will know the um the feeling of dread that um, creeps into anyone hosting a party who notices they're running low. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's great to have a way for, for the product being uh, brought to the front door instead of going out and risking your safety. Uh, you know, I, I think the burden of proof is on people who say this doesn't make it safer. I mean, how, how something being delivered to the front door could be more dangerous is a <laughs> interesting proposition.
0: I actually, since you brought up ride sharing, I'd like to uh, follow up with another question there. Uh, One of the things that ride sharing has received a lot of pushback on is uh, surge pricing, especially during emergencies for the safety factor. Um, do you foresee any surge pricing for Clink as you start getting more popular?
2: We take, we take a little bit of an opposite approach, which is our delivery fee is $3.87. It's $3.87 if you order a bottle of wine, and it's $3.87, as has happened multiple times, if you need a U-Haul to transport your order, which has literally happened multiple times, or an order the other day, which required four different cars to transport it. Um, so it's three eighty seven no matter what, and not only that, but we're, <laughs> We're, we're super committed to not closing. So as you guys know, recently there's been some crazy snow days in D.C. Um, we got people to come in from Maryland and Virginia with these huge trucks to do deliveries anyway when everything was shut down. So it, that, that's fun for us. We, we want to make sure that whatever you order, especially if your work is canceled and you're at home and uh, are looking for something to do, um, we want to make sure that your order gets to you no matter what. Um, it's 387 no matter what. And as long as it is physically possible for us to get it to you with some sort of vehicle, we will.
3: So uh the the policy analyst side of uh, my brain would would really be love to see uh surge pricing in this uh in this market. I would be very interested to see like what value a parent who's just spent 2 hours putting toddlers to bed, what value they put on a stiff gin <laughs> um or uh, a yeah, a drink. It would be very interesting to see. Uh but you know your business um, you can price it how you want uh, but but i also think you know that that could potentially if i'm if i, I don't know what the regulatory barriers to that might be um, that there could potentially be some i don't know um, although uh, the fact you're doing it through retailers makes it a bit of a different thing to the ride sharing
0: yeah um this was covered earlier but you have any <laughs> So there's actually two questions here. I'm gonna ask the first one and then I'll get, hop back to the second one. Um, the first question was, uh, since there are so many um, states that have a state monopoly on liquor sales, is Klink operating um, in those states with those uh, companies? And if so, are they seeing a substantial difference from their business dealings with uh, local liquor uh, retailers, which is how they usually operate in places such as D.C.?
2: Right. Yeah. And it's, it's a really good question. And it's funny because it brings up parts of our founding story. I was in school in Philly and Craig was in school in Orlando. And the question was, where do we start this? It has to be where one of us lives. And um, Philly makes sense from every business perspective, right? It, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, but liquor stores are state-owned, didn't quite work out that way. And so in terms of the regulatory impact on our business, day one, before day one, that is a huge one. Um, so right now we haven't worked with any states who actually control um, distribution at the retail level. And we're certainly not you know, opposed to it. Uh, it's, it's a completely different ball game than what we're doing. And what we're doing is you know, dealing with mom and pop shops that have a clear profit incentive where we can show clear growth on day one. Um, but definitely not something we're, 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 um, you know, we're closed off to. The closest we've come is doing business in Michigan where um, the wholesale level in terms of spirits is controlled um, by the state and um, it's, it's harder. <laughs> it's, it's, it's less hospitable for sure.
1: Yeah, I would like to suggest that he approach Virginia and then he approach Pennsylvania. I know that both those states, they're in the business and they're in the business to sell, uh, believe it or not. Sometimes hard to believe. Uh Both states have a terrible problem with just a lack of access, uh, so they would really be ideal mm-hmm. candidates uh, it, i I would suggest you approach both of them.
2: great, we'll do.
0: <laughs> I imagine you get similar similar suggestions for places like Utah, where people are driving across state borders. Get yeah, deer. definitely um and then that second question that I said that I would ask um was whether Clin um, has seen any surges in deliveries up not. Surge prices, sorry. Uh, any larger um, demand for alcohol uh, in the period surrounding snowstorms and other weather events?
2: Yeah, weather. weather's a serious factor um, in general, especially so in DC, especially so this winter. Um, yeah, when, when when snow when serious snow is coming, people order a lot more uh, in the lead up to the storm and. Because we've been able to deliver, they order a lot during the storm when they're home from work. Um, so yeah, weather is a big factor for us. It's there are different factors that um, kind of affect the the convenience. And one is weather when you do, don't want to leave your house because you'll freeze. Um, another in different markets is where you know parking is really hard to find and things like that. So we always look for areas where we can provide value um, in that respect. But weather is a huge huge determining factor for sure.
0: Great. Uh, trainer Five.
3: Oh, I'm sorry. Did you want to? Oh, sorry, just just quick question for Jeff. Um, because I, uh, just occurred to me. Do you do you deliver uh, to, uh, anywhere? So, for example, if someone's having a picnic out on the canal, or if someone's playing volleyball in the park, or, will, or I mean, are there places that you? Was it just residential, uh, areas that you deliver? Yeah,
2: it's a it's a little tough because the the regulations vary, but anywhere where it's legal. Anywhere where it's legal, we'll we'll deliver. So if it's not like a place where that would be prohibited, if you're allowed to have alcoholic beverages there for picnics and stuff, um, then yeah, we deliver. Ultimately, you know, it's whoever's receiving it needs to make sure they're following the law. Um, But in terms of, you know, the breakdown residential, it's obviously heavily residential, but a lot of offices and stuff like that, um, you know, businesses ordering as well and a lot of events um, too.
0: Okay. Uh, Trainer Five on Twitter asks... um, does Clink supply local brewery beers that you may not be able to find in a typical liquor store?
2: So yeah, we're, we're very focused on having really awesome selection for people. And it's, it's funny because we we're so um, driven by what our customers tell us and the feedback we get from customers. And so since we've launched in DC, we've more than doubled the size of our inventory just from hearing from customers and having their requests. And so we make a really serious effort in each market and with each retailer to make sure that we're stocking local, awesome products, connecting people to really good stuff that might be harder to find. Like David said, a lot of it's about access too. Maybe there's, you know, one liquor store in D.C. that carries this awesome beer that you want to try. But if we can put it on Klink's platform and make it accessible to the entire district that easily, that's a really exciting opportunity. And so that's, that's huge for us. Yeah.
0: Great. Thank you. I saw a question back there. So we have
1: to jump over.
0: So the question was: uh, Businesses like Clink um, had immense regulatory hurdles when they were starting out. Um, is innovation driving um, political pressure for those regulations to be eased?
2: Yeah. So I'm a I'm a big believer in in entrepreneurship and, uh, and business driving those changes and, and sort of providing an avenue for consumers to speak very loudly about what they want and then letting that voice kind of swell up and influence uh, the political side of things. And so you know we, we've seen that um, consistently with, with other businesses in the on-demand space, um, like Uber, especially when they launched in D.C., there was a groundswell of support from consumers and um, certain council members made a 180 and uh, started supporting Uber. So that's, that's amazing. And we're, we're firm believers in that idea. So so we're not um, you know, policy scholars like Matt, and we're not lobbyists or anything like that, but we think that there can be huge strides made and changes made based on the actual business and the consumer demand and support that comes from it. One great example is DC, I'm gonna keep returning to, but there were no explicit regulations or guidelines for this business um, when we launched in DC, we did it. Um, as, as we tend to, and um, if the reception was great. And then several weeks later, they promulgated their official regulations. And so that's probably the clearest linkage I can show at this point of our business influencing policy. And um, it's great to see.
1: Yeah, and I might add to a certain extent, we have seen that over the years uh, as the marketplace changed in the wine business, where you all of a sudden had so many small wineries. Uh, they very much wanted to be able to ship direct to their consumers. If you're a small winery in California, you wanted to be able to ship your product uh, to Virginia and other states. Well, there's something called the Graham-Holm decision that there are a number of states that would say, okay, you can ship within state, but you can't ship out of state. Well, the Gramholm decision went through that and said, all right, if you allow uh, your in-state wineries to ship, you have to allow out-of-state wineries to ship as well. Well, anyway, after this ruling, what we saw is today, I think it's something about 16% of all wine, in value terms, granted, not in volume terms, is now shipped direct from the winery to to someone's home.
0: And Matthew, from your perspective, working with uh, sharing economy uh, regulations, do you find that it's more the case that innovation is driving a relaxation of those regulations, or um, is it causing regulators to really tamp down more?
3: I think there's an incredible amount of diversity, not just in the United States, but uh, globally. When it I mean, so uh, in the sharing economy, things like uh, taxis and uh, hotels are regulated uh, at very small local levels, and uh, the regulations vary. Uh, so, as as Jeff said, uh, DC is comparatively rather favorable to uh, sharing economy companies like uh, Uber and Lyft. Uh, that's not the case in Uh, other cities and and I suspect this is probably the case with with alcohol that um, some jurisdictions are going to be easier um, to make uh, reforms uh, make reforms in uh, just based on not. I mean, there are a lot of things to take take into account so existing regulations but also the political culture of the jurisdiction what's the demographic of the people in that jurisdiction what the market demand is um, how available supply is Uh, so uh, yeah I mean there are undoubtedly going to be similarities
1: great thank you I have a question. that's probably more for David. It's about direct sales from breweries and kind of wineries that you mentioned. If I live in Virginia and I want to order direct from a brewery in New York, say, um, New York laws is keeping that from me being able to go to their website and say, "Send me a third time." law uh, saying no, you can't do that. Or is that a federal law that's saying you can't do that? What would be the first step to kind of bring them back to that? Yeah, I. So, oh, sorry. Actually, let me
0: oh, repeat sorry. the question. Yes. Actually. Go ahead. <laughs> So the question was dealing with uh, ordering from local breweries out of state, uh, ordering delivery to your home or, I guess, business, and whether um, the restrictions around that were largely at the level of the state in which the brewer was, uh, the state in which you were, or some federal sort of regulation.
1: Yeah, I will say typically it's going to be the state that you live in that dictates the laws. Uh, I don't typically it's not you know it's fine with another state if you're is somebody is shipping product to you. It's the state that you live in. Now in Virginia, I don't know about beer, but uh, I mean I haven't bought wine at retail in probably four or five years now, so I can attest to the fact that you can have wine delivered to your home in Virginia. Apparently, it's not the case with beer. You're telling me. I, 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 Okay. Yeah,
2: um, so this question comes from probably a
1: potential customer. I live in Virginia. Are you able to order, since
0: Virginia controls the social spirits, are you able to order online from uh, Clink? So the question comes um, from an attendee from Virginia, and his question is since Virginia has a state controlled monopoly on alcohol, would he be able to order from Clink, um, based in DC?
2: Short answer very soon. <laughs> um, Right. Yeah. So yeah. So basically, to answer your question, our current understanding, like I said, we haven't launched in Virginia yet. Is that the the way that beer and wine is handled in Virginia is analogous to the way everything is handled in you know other in like D.C. for example, where the whole the whole system is private. So yes, beer and wine should be sort of conducive to um, should should work with our model in in Virginia. Yeah, and we're we're working really hard on it.
0: So the question was, um, in places such as Pennsylvania, where the state has uh, monetary interest, uh, so Pennsylvania does have monopoly control of alcohol sales, um, where the state has monetary interest in maintaining that monopoly, how can regulators be incentivized to make changes?
3: Uh, so I'd answer the question in, in, in two ways. I think, number one, uh, the, the great thing about uh, existing regulations when it comes to alcohol, I, I mean, the silver lining in the cloud, is that there are these, you know, dozens. Uh, you know, there are laboratories of democracies in the country, and lawmakers who are interested in people living in their state, enjoying economic prosperity and being fostering of innovation and entrepreneurship, uh, can look to uh, states and other jurisdictions where that is a priority and see what the outcomes are. Uh, another thing I, I, I would add is that I, I think politicians are, are, oftentimes, you know, you hope uh, listening to. The constituents' demands. I think if this is something that is available across the country, but on Pennsylvania, local politicians are going to hear uh, grief from their constituents. Uh, and as I said earlier, as as um, this technology is not going anywhere, it's out of the box, and it's going to become increasingly familiar to more and more people. So in the years going forward, I think it's going to be harder and harder to make the argument that the regulatory regime, which by you know, which which is decades old and doesn't take into account any. Uh, technological changes is not appropriate. I think that case is gonna become increasingly easy to make.
0: David, do you have any insight? Yeah, I
1: might add that particularly in Pennsylvania, you might wanna just simply talk to the regulators, talk to the Liquor Control Board. Uh, They're the ones that the legislature will listen to. Uh, Right now there's something called Senate Bill 15 uh, before the Pennsylvania Senate, which I recognize as the PLCB's wish list. So obviously they have a lot of say in what's what's advocated by the legislators.
0: Uh, we have another question from Twitter uh, Blair Bien asks um, can you respond to trends in local beers that are popular in a particular market, or is the inventory the same across all markets
2: yeah there's um there's definitely like I mentioned before, we try to have um, you know definitely local products in, in 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 each different market, and there really is a, a serious appreciation um, of that by customers so in you know we see a, a higher um, higher degree of sales of local products in each market. So in, you know, in Michigan, there's a lot of bells um, that's got, that gets bought in D.C. There's a lot of green hat and D.C. Brothers. So um, yeah, that's, that's definitely part of how we structure our inventory. And it, it also is definitely um, a trend that we see in, in purchases, for sure.
1: That uh planned or not? And secondly, has that kind of sperm you got to uh birth to the uh kind of uh vendors and businesses that ordinarily weren't.
0: More than- okay, so th- this was a two-part question. The first half was asking about the regulatory cost of compliance for Clink when starting their business, and the second half was um whether that regulatory Uh, Costs change them to uh, sorry cause them to change their business model to incorporate more third party vendors where previously they wouldn't have.
2: Yeah, so I think um, very early on in 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 deciding to go into the business and and really digging into what that meant, we we knew what kind of battle we'd be getting into um, from a regulatory perspective. So even though um, there's a lot (laughs) of regulation and a lot of specifics that sort of come to the forefront as you actually start operating, uh, nothing took us. That much by surprise. Um, so, you know, with that said, the, the cost of, of compliance and, and, especially the upfront cost of, um, you know, doing the, the research to structure the business properly is definitely expensive. Um, and, and that was probably more expensive than we thought it would be. There's also a substantial cost every time we want to go into a new market because there's a lot of research that has to be done to make sure it's a it's the market's going to work um, with the way our business is structured and to see if there's any kind of changes that, that, that we need to make um, so it, it hasn't changed the, the way that our business is structured or the way we do business but um, it's a substantial uh, you know element of what we have to do for sure
0: were there any more questions from the audience
2: Yeah. So, right.
0: So, so, the question was about uh, tax rates being different across state borders, and as uh, if Klink was delivering across those borders, um, how the tax rates would be dealt with.
2: So we would love to deliver across state borders, but we can't legally. Um, What the point that you made about uh, the ability, that the fact that the ability to deliver across state borders would introduce a a very interesting dimension of competition is, is completely correct. I mean, Pennsylvania is another example, has a very high liquor tax and very frequently, People, when I was in college and lots of people I knew would go to New Jersey or go to Delaware, um, where they can get it 15 percent, 20 percent cheaper. And so, um, I think it would be incredibly interesting if, if there were, um, the legal ability to do cross-border transactions like that because it would force serious, um, competition from a, from a tax perspective. Uh, but, you know, because of that, um, it's very much in the interest of the, the regulatory agencies and the states generally to not allow that so they don't, they don't have to compete.
0: Okay, and with that, thank you all for coming here today. I'd like to thank today's panelists, Matthew, Jeffrey, David, for coming out here.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you.